0: And we're picking up um, just after Joseph has been in, uh, in Potiphar's house and has risen to this position of prominence um, within his home. Um, and this is Genesis 39, and we're reading verses 6 to 20. So he had left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. because you are his wife how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God and though she spoke to Joseph day after day he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her one day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside she caught him by his cloak and said come to bed with me but he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to make, uh, to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. We'll end our reading there for today.
1: It's good to have my own team of stage managers, isn't it? Uh, thanks, uh, everyone, for your, your best wishes. I'm recovering all right. Um, I am still on drugs. Uh, I, I don't know if it's the first time the preacher has been on drugs on a Sunday morning at Kirkpatrick, I wouldn't want to assume, but um, just Gwen's a little bit worried that the filter might have gone, and uh, given the subject this morning, that could be quite catastrophic, so hopefully that that won't be the case. I I say that because uh, about… I suppose about 15 years ago when I was in another church not too far from here, we were going through the series of Joseph, and my boss had sort of allotted the various passages that we had to preach on. Um, and I mean, I was a bit slow on the uptake here, but it took me a while to realize what he'd done. You know, if you look through Genesis, we we're doing Jacob and, and Joseph, you know, he got the story of Jacob's reconciliation with Esau. I got the next chapter, which is the rape of Dinah. He got, um, you know, Joseph and his coat of many colors. Uh, I got Judah and the prostitute, which is the next chapter. Uh, he got Joseph rising to prominence in Potiphar's house, and then I get Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Like, it was, a, it was like a complete, you know, triple whammy. And then two weeks later, uh, there was an elderly lady coming into the church, and she met my boss uh, uh, in the vestibule and said to him, uh, is it the big fellow this morning? And he says, well, yes, as a matter of fact, it is. And then she said, oh, you know, he's not bad when he stares off sex. <laughs> and if you've been coming to Kirkpatrick just for the last, you know, few months, uh, where we did this story just before the summer on the series on A Better Story, you know, church and all the issues to do with sex and sexuality, you may be forgiven for perhaps thinking that we are obsessed with this subject. But this morning, we're just looking at the next bit of the Joseph story, and the Bible is realistic, it's relevant, it's resourceful when it comes to how we live in the real world. Um, And we see that Joseph's life has been a a bit of a roller coaster up until now, hasn't it? Uh, Favorite son, everything going well, sold into slavery, not so good. Uh, Rising to prominence in Potiphar's house, yeah, good, and now this morning another turning point. When I think back to, you know, a couple of decades ago when we were uh, doing this series in that last church, and I had a little look at how we might have dealt with it then, what struck me was just how much the culture has continued to change in this whole area of sex and sexual temptation it was difficult then, but it's just got increasingly harder. Back then, we're just talking, what, 15 years? There was no Tinder. Sexting wasn't in the dictionary. No one had developed any cheating apps. It was before Love Island. You remember those halcyon days? Yeah. And with some of the, well, basically all the social stigma surrounding sexual behavior more or less completely disappeared, it's never actually been easier culturally to be promiscuous. I came across pictures in the local press this week of the Queen's Freshers Ball. And while I love working with students and all that I do there let's just say I'm so glad I don't have an 18-year-old daughter who might find herself pressured to attend such events. Let's just say the photographs probably wouldn't have made it into the brochure this morning. And when some of the lads there were interviewed, and they say openly, and I quote, that they're there to check out the fresh meat. I don't need to emphasize how hard it is especially for young people to be followers of Jesus in this area. The rugby trial probably opened a few eyes as to what was acceptable behavior for more than a few young adults in Northern Ireland today, but not just young people. Joseph faces a situation which all of us face to a greater or lesser extent throughout our lives. No matter our age, Joseph is a young man, Potiphar's wife is, I guess the term is, a bit of a cougar. Uh, No matter our status, he's a slave, she is in power. No matter whether we have a faith in God or not, no one is immune. Whether it's in our actions or our imaginations, this transcends gender and orientation. And of course, Christian leaders are notoriously vulnerable. Maybe we've been a little bit used to some of the tele-evangelists who are on the fringes of evangelical Christianity falling in this area, setting themselves up. But of course, this summer, the well-known Willow Creek Community Church was completely rocked by the allegations against their longtime senior pastor, Bill Hybels. And that and the allegations perpetually surrounding the current president of the United States also remind us how power is a big dynamic often in these situations. So in this story, I want us to look first of all at what I would call the trajectory of temptation, six progressive steps in sexual temptation. Genesis is remarkably even-handed. As I said, it doesn't matter the gender or the age. If you look at the earlier chapters, you see enough of the sordid male psyche with Judah and uh, Shechem. But now it's the turn of the female seductress as we're introduced to Potiphar's wife. And the first thing we, uh, we notice is that uh, she looks... Before anything is said or any physical contact made, we read in quite a quaint term, "She cast her eye," is the Hebrew term, on Joseph. She saw and she knew what she wanted. A bit like King David later in the Scriptures with Bathsheba. All affairs, just like all romances, begins with a look. All lust, just like all falling in love, begins with a look. It's neutral, but it can lead one of two ways. The issue, of course, isn't the look, so much as the type of look, the length of look, the regularity of the look, and most of all the intention behind the look. We know what's meant when we hear the phrase that someone is a real head-turner, but what does it mean if we prolong that for an inordinate length of time or with purely sexual intention to someone who's not our spouse? It's not limited to dirty old men. It's much more subtle than that. It involves the first stages of flirtation, when we cast our eye on someone, going beyond the casual, normal, admiring, natural look to dwell unhealthily on the physical attributes of that person. To do so is to travel with Potiphar's wife along the first step, Now, the second step may seem a little bit of a a jump. It's the direct invitation. She approaches Joseph and says quite simply, come to bed with me. Lie with me. Now, this seems abrupt only if we forget that the the first step involved a little bit maybe of chatting up, flirtation. And I think, too, there is still possibly a a cultural gender difference here. Guys maybe feel they need to do a lot more wooing and courting. But because of the reputation of guys being incredibly weak in this area and their ability to have sex without commitment, it's often seen that guys are easy game if you just approach them straight and blatantly. I've seen articles where this has been put down as as an advice to to women. Just, just, Just say, you know, they'll give in think about the most alluring and attractive. Talk to the men here. Think of the most alluring and attractive woman you know apart from your wife. You're away from home. You're lonely. You have the opportunity, and she directly propositions you in this manner. Can we? any of us honestly say without equivocation that we would resist without a moment's thought? Because Scripture says, when we think we stand, watch out in case we fall. And of course, Potiphar's wife was in a power relationship. She was Joseph's superior. She was his boss's wife. And she persisted. That's the next stage persistence. Resisting might only be part of the battle, the beginning of the battle. It says in verse 10a that she spoke to Joseph day after day, a constant dripping. Come on, why not? Who's going to know? What are you afraid of? Have you never been with a woman before? a war of attrition on the integrity of this young believer. How often does that happen with all sorts of temptations? It's just recurring and it's relentless. So don't let's pat ourselves on the back when we resist the temptation once. Because you can be sure, and I use the phrase deliberately, you can be sure as hell that it will return. Resist, thank God for his help, but continue to keep watch because Joseph was attacked day after day in this area. And then there was compromise. When the direct approach failed, Potiphar's wife tried the more subtle approach. She tried compromise. Well, hey, let's just be friends, spend a little bit more time together, get to know one another a little bit more. That's what's implied, I believe, by the second half of verse 10. Joseph refused even to be with her in her company. I think it might imply that at some point she might have modified her demands. Let's just be friends. When the direct temptation fails, maybe we might unconsciously, unexpectedly give in to the more subtle ones. If we believe a proposed relationship is wrong, then we need to be realistic and honest about our own weaknesses not to put ourselves within the catchment area of temptation. Let's just be friends. But don't demean the importance of friendship or intimacy by qualifying the word friends with the word just. What does it mean to be just friends, other than perhaps the most meaningless excuse you're ever given when you're being dumped by your girlfriend? Uh, Maybe that was just me. Friendships are important, and they're not to be entered into lightly. If you feel that there is a tempting relationship that is uh, inappropriate, there is no room for compromise. Maybe because of our own weaknesses, we recognize that a normal friendship just can't take place. Just recognize it, accept it. Many have fallen because they thought they could meet temptation halfway. And then fifthly, she manipulated circumstances so that she could be in the position she wanted to be in. Now, this took a bit of planning and forethought. The final showdown happened when none of the servants were in the house. Very few illicit sexual encounters occur when there's lots of people around. They happen when your parents are away. They happen when you're away on a, a business trip, traveling, maybe far from home. And if you're wondering about the wisdom or otherwise of being with someone, it's always worth asking, have these circumstances been engineered? Am I being used here? I remember endless discussions in my youth group back in the day on the subject of relationships. I remember one leader being getting a lot of flack because… Um, They commented on the inappropriateness, perhaps, of being alone with your boyfriend or your girlfriend in your bedroom. But when I think back about it, that was actually simply common sense on the grounds that if we're serious about being obedient in this area, then being together and alone in your room immediately removes some of the natural barriers that might prevent you from falling. You know, if you think… if you sort of think naively, that you can be in certain situations and not be tempted. It's not because you're ultra-holy. It's either because you're made of wood or you're naive. It's always a good idea to be, what I would say, one step away from feasibility. That means that if you were to give in to sexual temptation, you couldn't do it there and then. So be aware of finding yourself, even unwittingly or innocently, in circumstances that have been manipulated to make it difficult for you to resist. And then finally, of course, she resorted to the purely physical. Verse 12, she caught hold of him. Maybe if he feels my body close to his, if he holds me, maybe if we kiss, then I'll be irresistible. There'll be a chemistry between us. Nature will take over. And in what really amounts to a form of sexual assault, she grabs hold of Joseph. Don't underestimate the power of physical embrace. It's worth remembering here that there are those who would have had every intention of resisting an affair, but who found unexpectedly that there was no way back once the physical had begun. They had gone too far already. Joseph didn't allow it to get that far. He got himself out of there. So those are the six steps, if you like, in seduction. And we notice the cunning of this woman, that when none of these succeeded, she spitefully resorted to wrongful accusation. And the theme of clothing returns. Remember earlier Joseph's multicolored coat is left behind to deceive his father. Now his Egyptian clothing is left behind to deceive his boss. And in both cases, the result is disastrous. The narrator of Genesis exposes the the woman's lies masterfully in how he tells the story. Because the real course of events, you'll know, is she accosts him, she grabs his coat, he leaves, and she calls out in wounded pride. But when she retells the story, she actually reverses everything. He accosts her. She screams out for help and then he leaves and forgets his coat. And what's more, she subtly changes one word so that the garment is not in her hand, which would have implicated her, but beside her, implying that Joseph had left it there when she screamed. And notice that she also says to her husband, this Hebrew slave that you brought in, manipulating She knew how to press all the right buttons, appealing to her husband's sense of pride. He's been humiliated in his own house by a foreigner and a slave. And his responsibility, he actually was responsible for bringing him there in the first place. She seems prepared to blame everyone but herself. I've concentrated so far on maybe putting ourselves in the place of Joseph, the one tempted, the victim. But I don't want to deny the possibility that some of us from time to time have done the seducing. We've used our sexuality, our popularity, our looks, even our power to cast a spell on others. And if we've been shown up and resisted, how have we responded? Defensively? Blaming everybody else but ourselves? Prepared to accuse others and see others suffer rather than lose face and shoulder the responsibility? And if the Bill Hybels episode has taught us anything, it is surely that that will always be a natural reaction. Not repentance, but damage limitation. Our own country is sadly rife with examples of that in ecclesiastical circles. And when we see these traits in Potiphar's wife, we might recoil and say it's repulsive, it's manipulative, it's evil. But maybe we need to ask if some of those traits exist within ourselves, and to be careful. So having looked at the steps the seduction, the trajectory of temptation, what about the road to resistance? How practically can we take stuff from this that helps us to resist? Well, firstly, Joseph exhibits a love and respect for his neighbor, in this case his boss. In contrast to Potiphar's wife's very curt and direct come to bed with me, Joseph answers calmly in verses 8 and 9, rather long-windedly. I mean, I look at verses 8 and 9, and I'm thinking, this guy's just been propositioned by this woman to come to bed. I'm not sure how he's able to find any words on his tongue, never mind a quite articulate defense. And he resists initially out of respect for his boss and all that his boss has done for him. He honors that person's trust. Because you see, adultery is not a private action. The glossy magazines are wrong, terribly wrong. The TV reality shows are terribly wrong. Apart from the unseen harm it does to the hearts and souls and lives of the participants, there's always at least one if not two other innocent parties who are horrendously hurt by the betrayal. Who knows what excuses Potiphar's wife gave Joseph in her daily tormenting of him oh, my husband doesn't notice me anymore. He's always away. I have needs, and he's not interested. These excuses have been around for a long time. But Potiphar's wife should have been sorting them out with Potiphar, not with Joseph. Whatever the deficiencies in their marriage, and there were obviously some, those were issues that they had to work out. In any Temptation in this area, love for neighbor will involve thinking of the other person, thinking of the third party, thinking of the one we are covenantly committed to in marriage and how we need to love them more appropriately. But Joseph didn't just resist on the grounds of love for neighbor, he primarily resisted out of love for God. Verse 9 How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Now, bear in mind Joseph's situation here. In Canaan, his homeland, he was history, dead. In Egypt, he was nobody, a foreign slave, no friends, no family. Who would have known if he had given in? I think if we're all honest, we will recognize that many of our more serious temptations, we resist out of a fear of being found out we fear for our reputation and our name. But what if? What if it could be virtually guaranteed that nobody would ever find out? If you were promised a night with the man or woman of your dreams and the knowledge that nobody would ever find out, what would you do? Joseph had no earthly demotivators, No cultural barriers to stop him doing what any hot-blooded, young, hormone-filled 18-year-old would do. To most people in our culture, the Christian ethic is stupid. There's no reason to resist. What Potiphar doesn't know won't hurt him. Well, no reason except one. Joseph had a God, a God who had promised to be with him. A God who had revealed enough of his character and his values to Joseph that Joseph knew that betrayal and unfaithfulness would be abhorrent to God. It could have no part in the life of those who wanted to be counted as a friend of this God. Now, remember this too. It would be so easy for Joseph to feel that he didn't owe God anything. After all, what had God done for him? God had let him down. He was hated by his brothers. He was sold into slavery alone in a foreign country. Most of us would have given up on God by this stage, never mind conquered severe temptation to be faithful to him. But what does Joseph do? He remains faithful. What sort of relationship do we have with God? Is it strong enough that that relationship is a sufficient reason in itself to say no to any temptation, even ones that if we yield, no one will find out? Is our relationship with and love for God so strong that we know it doesn't matter whether people will find out or not? That's not the point. Is it strong enough so that when we're tempted, the first thing we just say is sorry, I can't sin against God. That's the ultimate challenge of this story. So those were if you like two inner roots to resistance considering your neighbour, considering God. But there's also two outer roots. He refuses to be compromised and he physically removes himself. He steadfastly refuses to place himself in any compromising situation. And that meant getting out. There's times when the only course of action open to us in order to retain our integrity is to run, leave the party, get out of the car, check out of the hotel, phone for a taxi home, don't hang about. Don't think twice. Nothing will be lost. No harm will be done by removing yourself from the situation. It's definitely a case of better safe than sorry. I've always believed through all the preaching that I've done in the close relationship between the theological and the practical. And it's often usual to look at a Bible passage and point out the theological stuff and then to apply it practically. Done it a little bit the other way around this morning. We've gone for the practical and I hope it has been practical. And I want to close with what a passage like this tells us about God, the theological, because that will be the motivator. And a couple of really important things. First of all, on this chapter and on this occasion, the Bible character does very well. He wins, he succeeds, he resists. It's not always the case, we think, of King David, and it may not always have been the case for us. There'll be good days, there'll be bad. I remember one well-known Christian speaker on a panel with me one time, and he answered this question to do with sexual temptation, and he told a similar story of a time when he was propositioned directly by a young woman. And he said two very important, qualifying things. He said this in giving his answer and pointing out how he resisted. He said, first of all, don't get me wrong, this doesn't happen to me very often. And secondly, he said, she got me on a good day. Even he recognized that there could have been circumstances, times, where he may not have resisted so easily. and he said that to help those who perhaps have not always resisted <coughs> there may have been times one or more when we haven't been joseph we've been david and maybe this morning has opened up a few wounds maybe you're here this morning as part of a journey back to god or to god for the first time and you're thinking i'm feeling accused here boy i'm feeling really judged That's not the purpose of the passage. It's not the purpose of the sermon. It's rather to reassure you of what I call here the power and the glory. No action, no sin, past or present, is beyond the grace of God to heal and forgive. Stephen read the verse in Hebrews 4. Jesus Christ tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet He did not sin. A number of years ago, Martin Scorsese's movie, The Last Temptation of Christ, caused a fair degree of controversy. I never saw the movie, but I know enough to know that it depicted Christ in the throes of a sexual temptation. Now, whatever the merits or otherwise of the film, that fact in itself, Christ being sexually tempted, should not be controversial. Scripture itself says it, tempted in every way, yet without sin. You see, he lived the life we should have lived. And by his death, he swallowed up the the pain and the shame and the guilt and the adultery and the unfaithfulness of all those who put their trust in him. And if you stand with Jesus, or if you come to Jesus this morning, It's His resistance of temptation that covers your failure. The worship song says it well. No sin too slight to overlook. No crime too great to carry. All mingled in this poisoned cup, and yet He drank it all in Gethsemane and on Calvary. It was your sin and it was mine. So we can live differently. Because the Holy Spirit gives us a power. It's the power of the second chance. In Him we can overcome. It's never the end. One final point. Just in case you've forgotten Stephen's sermon last week and we're laboring under a misapprehension that often happens, it's what I call the false equation. And that is, if we're good, everything will be okay. If we obey, God will answer all our prayers the way we want them to answer. If you think that by resisting temptation, maintaining your integrity, doing the right thing, you're going to be immediately rewarded, we might be disappointed. Because for Joseph, what was the result? False accusation, prison for quite a few years. Hardly a great advertisement for integrity if the only thing we're looking at is the end result. And what's the point? Doing the right thing will be costly. Christ promised that. He proved it Himself, and He said it would be the case for His followers. The world can't cope with Joseph's. The tabloid newspapers exist to knock people like Joseph down and slander them. But notice this that at the beginning and at the end of this chapter, this difficult and traumatic period in Joseph's life, the same phrase is used. Verse 2, The Lord was with Joseph. That was Joseph abused and vulnerable and isolated, the lonely foreign teenage slave. The Lord was with him, and he prospered. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 23, The Lord was with Joseph. And that was a different Joseph. That was Joseph shamed, accused, victimized, foreign jailbird. The Lord was with him. And he had success in whatever he did. Success? Success? He was in prison. But how do we measure success? Wealth? Pleasure? Leisure? That was the world of Potiphar's wife is that success? Or do we measure it in character terms? The integrity of a Joseph. Can you be successful on the dole? In redundancy? In grief? In bereavement? In sickness? In poverty? In prison? Yes, yes, yes. The Lord has promised to be with us. 1 Corinthians 10:13 No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man but God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your strength but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it That's our God with us in the real world, alongside us in temptation, there for us if we fall, but there to prompt us, to remind us of His love and of His grace and for all that He's done for us, to get us through that to the other side. And may that be the Lord that goes with each one of us into this week and beyond. Let us pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is our prayer. It's Lord's prayer for myself, for everyone here this morning. And that in a world that is offering so many lies in this area, that we would be faithful, we would show the better way. And that there would be no one here this morning who does not just understand your standards, but that would also not understand your grace, and your love. May all of us hold firm to your truth. May all of us know your grace and the power of the second chance and the third and the fourth by your Spirit to live as you want us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.